This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome back to Death by Southwest, the podcast where each week I share a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest, while my sister and co-host tries to piece together the clues and unravel the mystery behind each of these heinous crimes. I'm your host, Margo. And I'm Jenna. And we are here on Sunday afternoon recording episode 22 Double twos. Double twos. And we are feeling doubly not great Negative today. two. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we had a big family dinner at Jenna's house last night with everyone, and there was, a, you know, copious amounts of libations, wines, cocktails, foods. Whatever people wanted. Yeah, we did. Um, it was a great... It was like th- top... It was tapas. Yeah, tapas. But like kind of like potluck. Like everybody made a, a couple different dishes that were kind of appetizers. And it was great. Do you want to tell everyone what you made? Meatballs. Yeah. <laughs> that took you a minute. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, I'm all, well, my little like toasts didn't, meh. I thought my they peppers, fine. But yeah, main, yeah, main event, right. meatballs. In red sauce. In delicious red sauce. Yeah. Cooking all day. Yeah. And, but yeah, I thought your little baguette pieces with some ricotta, ragutta, and that's how mom used to say it, I feel oh. like. And uh, cucumbers, uh, like shaving. Zucchini shaved. Oh, zucchini yeah. shaved. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought yeah, those that were good. That elevates it a bit. It did. It looked nice. It looked nice. Come it on. It look looked nice. really good. It yeah. was kind of boring, but that's fine. Yeah. I, it looked really uh, good. It looked nice. Michael's mom made delicious bacon wrapped scallops. Really prosciutto. good. Prosciutto. That oh, elevates it a bit. There you go. We're fancy around here. <laughs> All right. Remember that listener said, don't jibber jabber on, girls. Ugh, okay, fine. Good point. Well, let me let me tease <laughs> today's episode, and then we'll jibber jabber a little bit before we get into it. So on today's episode, we're going to learn about three different heinous murders here in Tucson, Arizona that all occurred on different dates and in different places around Tucson that will forever be linked by one chilling common factor that kept the Tucson community on edge for months back in the year 2000. That was right before, that was the year before we moved here, two that years That was the before. year we moved here. Oh, 2000? Mm-hmm. Oh. I graduated in 2000, ugh, and we moved here that summer. Oh, well, yeah. there you go. So this was... This happened right before we moved here because it was in spring of 2000. Mm. And uh, just a precursor, as we said, we had a a, a dinner. A dinner, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the, that is like so appropriate. I was going to say we had a, a dinner with extra drinks and both of us are feeling a little bit less than clear-headed today. So I'm a little nervous to try and record this. Plus, this story is one that I I've been holding... I wasn't going to do because it felt like there wasn't enough information out there and it's kind of piecemeal, but it is really interesting and fascinating and has, and does have some weird twists and turns. And, and I was trying to find who suggested this. I, someone sent us a DM or an email and suggested this story, which focuses a little bit more on the killer Mm -hmm. than the victims because there are multiple victims. And uh, I know that sometimes that can be perceived as us kind of like glorifying the the murderer or the suspected murderer, not trying to do that, just um, kind of kind of trying to tell the story as it... With the info you got, I Yeah, imagine. as the story like, kind of needs to be told. Yeah. yeah. So, but it takes place here in Tucson. So we're going to, we've already done a Tucson one with Gary Triano, and is that I, the only one we've done? I think so. Yeah. And I, I just finally posted the other day that footage of us going to where he was killed. Oh. Like I just posted that on Instagram. And so we're not going to do a real sense of place because we've already done that. And if you haven't heard the sense of place of Tucson, you can go back to the Gary Toronto episode, which is episode number, I don't know. And, <laughs> uh, 
and listen to that for sense of place. I was going to do just a quick recap, and I thought I would see what you remember about Tucson, like basic Tucson facts. What I remember about Tucson, even though I live here. <laughs> Gary Triano. Whoa. Sorry. Gary Triano, I believe, was episode seven. Okay. We did it on January 11th. We recorded it on January 11th. Hmm. Anyways. Okay, so what I remember about the facts you already gave me. Well, right. So for anybody who hasn't heard our previous episodes and they're like, I don't know anything about Tucson. Tucson is located in southeastern Arizona, 60 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border, surrounded by several mountain ranges. Um, what is Tucson's elevation, do you recall? Uh, 1,600. 2,389. Damn it. Uh Hot desert climate, summer months, which is June through September. It's usually over 100 degrees every day. Also, where are we now? May? Mm-hmm. Hot summer day? Yeah. I mean, or it's, hot day? It's 90 today, right? Which is hot to the most of the world. It's yes. hot to me, too. But it is, but it's not, not hot. Not as hot as it's going to get. <laughs> no, okay. it's yeah, not well, as hot as it's, it's going to get. Hot. It's we, hot. We get most of our rainfall during... Monsoon season. Which is... Uh, uh, July, August, yeah. Yep, July, August. In the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, winters, it's, you know, it can be around freezing at night, 32 at night. It gets pretty cold. Um, but, you know, the days are still pretty mild. Well, it also snowed and stuck a day and a half this... Was it this year? It was it in was March. It was yeah, in that's right. Early March, which is crazy, because now, look, eight, let's say seven weeks ago, it snowed and stuck. I remember it, actually. It was in the middle of the night. Mark was sleeping, yeah. <laughs> As people <laughs> typically are besides <laughs> you in the middle of the night. Unless they're that's night true. shift workers. So that's that's it. That's all we're going to cover on Tucson. Oh, that was... You know, the population is uh, around, if you're talking not just Tucson proper, but kind of the surrounding you know, uh, suburbs and communities. Well, people who live here would refer to About a million Tucson, people, yeah. yeah. And big university here, University of Arizona. Um, and that's it. If, if anybody is dying for more of a sense of place, you can head back to the episode seven of Gary Triano. Or just pull up your little computer in Wikipedia, Tucson. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so instead of sense of place, what I wanted to do today, I have a couple of things. I, I want to talk about two specific places in Tucson that pertain to this episode. And then some really random would you rather questions and the would mm. you rather comes from one of our patrons on patreon i had posted a video on patreon earlier this week saying you know what what can we put here that we're not putting anywhere else that you want and someone said do a would you rather one uh, patron said we i want we you know i want to know more about you and your sister and what you do in your free time what you do when you hang out together stuff like that just more about our lives i guess right which no problem we're, we'll work on that and then somebody else posted we want to see jenna juggling bowling pins while answering would you rather questions <laughs> if you get me bowling pin i mean i cannot juggle that would be really but funny I would though practice it maybe we'll make that happen so that made me think oh would you rather questions are kind of always fun i mean i, I guess like answering them because i can't get them wrong that's right you cannot get them wrong so maybe we'll start there to ease into this okay would you rather Live in a world without pizza or without ice cream? Without, I'd rather live in a world without ice cream. Me too, hands down. No question. <laughs> Would you rather be able to only whisper or only shout everything you say? I'd rather only whisper. Yes. Would you rather have the ability to talk to animals or have the ability to fly? Oh, I like those both. I know. And the flying one, any amount of distance? fly yeah. i guess i mean uh yeah fly because guess what i want to talk to animals and sometimes i feel like i can <laughs> <laughs> and okay i guess it would be helpful if they're hurting or they could tell me their exact ailments and also that'd be sad mm -hmm. like maybe cat tells us oh, i'm lonely <laughs> you know i don't i already know that i don't need to hear it from your little cat mouth <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. agreed. So fly, because I'd fly everywhere away. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode is off to a killer start. <laughs> 
Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to computers? Which like, uh, uh, I, mean, I already can. can. So every language, I would yeah. love, that's a cool one. Yeah. yeah. Every language, please. Would you rather eat only spicy food for the rest of your life or never be able to eat anything spicy again? Only spicy food. Mm. What is your answer? You could I, go with non-spicy. Only spicy food? Like like everything I eat would have to be spicy? spicy like no chocolate. sweets. Yeah. yeah. Spicy Ch- macaroni and cheese. Yum. Oh, this does sound good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like a spicy margarita, too. Or so. no spice, which I could do. I could, I could do either do of those too. and survive. Because I think about like how many foods in a day do I eat that aren't spicy? Nothing I've eaten today was spicy. And the last one, I don't even want to ask it, so I'll probably cut it. But would you rather have a pet unicorn or a pet dragon? Why don't you want to ask that? Because it just seems stupid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're neither are real. You can't have either. Who cares? I can also not learn every language or fly. So <laughs> um, I That's would. Fair. Well, fair point. I don't want you to ask it because I can't answer. Although I, I feel like I have to say dragon because I have that awesome dragon floaty. Oh, here we go babbling on. Okay. So we're going to talk about a little bit about two different places now. First, EG's, which I actually didn't look this up. Do you know if there's EG's anywhere else in the country except for Tucson? Just only Tucson. Tucson. Okay. I talk often, or me and whomever talks about, like, gosh, they should make one in Phoenix. Also, I like that it's only a Tucson thing. Mm, I have some information for you. Oh, no. Are you going to um, ruin my EG's beliefs? Maybe. Okay. So do you know any history about EG's? It started as one and it grew to many. That's true. So, and I guess I should say this for listeners, EG's is a, I hate to say fast food, but it is, it's kind of like a sandwich shop, fast food place. It is pertinent to this story. So back in 1971, there were um, a couple of high school friends who wanted to make money and, you know, beat the Arizona heat here in Tucson. So they bought a vending truck and started selling frozen lemonade. It wasn't frozen lemonade. It was a frozen lemon drink around town. And they were selling these frozen lemon drinks, you know, around the university and in, at sporting events. And then they had to to name it. And they decided to take one of them, I guess, had a name that started with E. One of them had a name that started with G. And so they combined it and they came up with E-G. But it's spelled E-E-G-E-E. S E G's, um, <laughs> and then they eventually decided, ah, oh, well, maybe we sell more than just this frozen lemon drink, and so they started making little subs, sub sandwiches. E G's then quickly became one of the first food trucks ever in the city of Tucson. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, way back in the seventies. Then they, you know, slowly introduced new flavors: orange, pina colada, and strawberry to these like kind of frozen. Frozen, it's like a frosé, but not It's like alcoholic. a slushy. It's like a slushy, but kind of thicker. Yeah, it's thicker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It also, is if you thicker. grew up in Tucson, I won't, I'm going to ask this to like the listeners, and I hope they all answer in line with me. Uh-huh. If you grew up in Tucson, what did you do when you got an EG's on Friday night? You put alcohol in it. You were supposed to pause so they could answer oh, in their heads. I will make a pause there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, go on. Okay, cool. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's a, well. well, that's not true because we've gotten EGs and I feel like you guys have talked about putting like alcohol in the EGs. That's what I mean. Yeah, the EGs. Yeah. But not as an adult. I haven't done that. So the, the frozen drink is actually called an EGs. The restaurant, an EG. An EG. The restaurant is actually called EGs. EGs. And it doesn't refer to the sub. I mean, now it refers to the whole thing. But right. yes, it's based on. But an EG s- is that frozen drink. That's correct. Yeah. Right. The the frozen lemon drink and subs were such a smashing success that they opened up their first brick and mortar location just one year after they started the food truck. And within two years of starting the food truck, they had four stores throughout Metro Tucson, uh, continued to expand and started starting in 1989, the restaurants began baking all of their own bread. And apparently they're really, they're known for having great ranch dressing as well. Um, also, EG's or the founders or the corporation, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago opened a couple, I think it's a couple, at least one, called Slice and Ice. It's an offshoot of EG. They still sell EG's, like the ice part. Both pizza? 
Yeah, but like, just it's kind of weird. It's like pizza and fries. Like, get a slice of pizza. You should look it up. I put it on the lookup list. Slice like and it. ice. It's when interesting. Carbo loading. That sounds like a good place to go. Pizza carbo. and fries. What's carbo load? Just loading in the carbs. Yeah, for like athletes. Oh yeah, slice yeah. and ice. I mean, you don't have to be an athlete. I carbo load often. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to carbo load right now. Uh, so the next place that I want to talk to you that will come up in today's story is called Tohono Chul Park. And do you want to give a description of it or shall I? Well, I'll just tell you what comes to mind. It's, okay. So like, well, not much comes to mind. Mine, <laughs> not today. Um, it's kind of, well, it's an outdoor, kind of like it reminds me of a nature conservatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an outdoor p- space where you can pay a little bit of money and go and check out really a local, lovely wildlife flora and fauna i knew you were gonna say that. there's also a little restaurant and tea room there's Mm -hmm. also uh they sell plants period yeah that's pretty spot on tohono chul park is a botanical garden and nature preserve located in the northwest area of tucson features a variety of gardens including a desert wildflower garden a hummingbird garden and a cactus and succulent garden as well as several art galleries and a gift shop it was founded in 1985 and covers approximately 49 acres. Uh, it's known for its mission to promote the conservation of the Sonoran Desert region and to inspire visitors to learn about and appreciate the natural and cultural history of the area. Cool. Yeah. So that will also come into play in our Yeah, I was going to say, today. why are we talking about that? <laughs> and Like, that's a stark contrast. So we're going to move on on <laughs> from our uh, sense of place intro into today's episode where we will learn about three different murders here in Tucson and the link that connected them all. So the year was 2000 when these murders occurred in spring, March and April. They occurred over about a three-week span, all of them. The first victim that I want to talk about is a man named Grady Mitchell Towers. He was 55 years old when he died on March 20th, 2000. He was born on May 9th, 1944. Family described him as an extremely intelligent, kind, gentle man who loved reading and learning new languages. He worked as a security guard at Tohono Chul Park. And he loved working as a security guard because it gave him time to study subjects that interested him. He enjoyed writing, and he was also a member of Mensa, which is a high IQ society uh, for people who've heard about it or who who haven't, I guess. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, he was. I imagine you have to like test into mm-hmm. be accepted into mensa mm-hmm. and that's cool because i was gonna say he he works to live essentially he has a job where right. he can pursue other interests or, right. or yes. curiosities cool. yes yes so he has a he had a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the university of arizona he also served in the air force he was introspective and quiet and um, a close friend said that he often preferred reading a good book than going out he also was very interested in constellations and bird calls. Cool place to live, Tucson. Great mm-hmm. for constellations. And then Tono Chul, I mean. Great place to work. Yeah. 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 Did he have a family that you're aware of? Like, <clears throat> I couldn't find anything about. I know Maybe he, had, he didn't. Maybe he wasn't like the traditional married with kids. Right. Maybe he was a dope human being. Yeah. I don't know if own. he was married with kids. I know that um, I do have some information and quotes that I'll share later from his mom and uh, brother. As far as I could find, I didn't find anything about a wife or kids. There was a memoriam online for him that was created by people from this higher IQ society that he was part of, this Mensa society, I believe, said that he was one of the most influential members of the higher IQ societies. And somebody wrote this personal uh, kind of account of him saying, I knew Grady pretty well, although he always maintained a certain reserve. I only met him in person once at a Triple Nine Society annual meeting in the late 80s. He was extremely intense, charismatic, argumentative, and he often had an unusual view of things that came up in many conversations that weekend. There was something that always seemed to be driving him. We agreed about some things and disagreed on others, but I always enjoyed the challenge of arguing with him. I'm kind of surprised. Those feel like 
not two opposing things, but when Somewhat you said he was people. introspective yeah. and whatever, rather read a book. And then this person described him as argumentative and intense, and which I guess people have different sides, but interesting. Well, the only thing I can think is that maybe in, in his day-to-day life, he was introspective and kind of quieter. But when it came to these high IQ societies, because this was an event for the, the high IQ society that this guy met him at, maybe in those situations where he felt like really comfortable or at, at his kind of um, level. Le- yeah. That, that, that's where he let that part of him come out more. Yeah. That's um, cool. He wrote a lot of essays uh, for publications in these society's journals. And he was murdered on, as I said, March 20th. He was working the overnight shift on March 20th at Tohono Tool. And apparently he was eating his lunch, which obviously was it was the middle of the night, but lunch for him, yeah. and reading a book when he was shot in the arm and the chest from a distance. And then the murderer moved closer and shot him five times in the head. He was unarmed. Oh my gosh. Yeah, also, pretty brutal. Should a security guard, I understand like Tohono Tools, like a chill ass place and Tucson's not like the hub of crime, but also like, shouldn't they have some sort of protection? I found several articles that really went into detail about you using the murder of Grady as, as one of several examples of security guards, not just in Arizona, but in other places around the country, I, I guess at this time, that were unarmed and had no way to protect themselves and were all murdered from robberies. And so the, apparently the person or people who murdered Grady were attempting to burglarize Tohono Tool, the gift shop. He was he was essentially watching over the gift shop because that's really the only, you know, what are you going to steal, like a, a cactus from the ground? Yeah, they are worth a lot of money and that could be, but they were um, attempting to steal money from the gift shop and they they did find that his pockets had been kind of rifled through and the park donation box was stolen along with all the money in it so that's all i'm going to say about grady for right now Mm -hmm. so that was march 20th on march 26th 2000 so six days later between 5 53 and 604 a.m a 50 year old woman named robin hay was found nearly decapitated inside of an EGs here in Tucson. It was the EGs at North Thornydale and West Ina Road. She was an assistant manager there. She had showed up for work around 5.30 that morning to start opening up the shop, the store. Forensics estimates that about 20 to 23 minutes later, she was murdered. She was stabbed so severely and 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 slashed in the throat so severely that it nearly cut her head off. Wow. Yeah. So a delivery driver found her, was dropping, was delivering something to EG's, came across her nearly decapitated head, and and made a hysterical call to nine one one. So the the Marana Police Department dispatcher who took the report from the delivery driver decided to wait to notify officers because the officers were in the morning briefing apparently at that time. So instead of immediately broadcasting the call, they waited. And uh, another officer who was close to the investigation said, quote, the dispatcher's response was just unbelievable. There were no alert tones, no broadcast, no nothing. It took six minutes for her to get a response going. And she did it by phoning the officers who were in the briefing individually one by one. Like, I was going to say, you said like the response was unbelievable or whatever. I'm thinking the lack of lack of response. response. Yeah, exactly. The delay. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and so this one article says the severity of, of Robin's wounds even if the response had been quicker, she probably would sure. have not lived. Nonetheless, let's say the wo- that she hadn't been so severely injured. She could have lived had this response not been so terrible. But this this kind of sloppy handling of the call or lack of handling of the call and response time proved to be foreshadowing for the entire investigation of Robin's murder. So whereas Grady's murder kind of brought up a lot of questions and you know, should security guards be armed? His murder was part of that conversation. Robin's murder became part of the conversation that Marana police, apparently around this time, were getting 
a lot of flack for being not great at their job, for slow response times, not fully investigating, not being um, kind of thorough or comprehensive about their police work. And that's what I'm going to say about that murder. Mm-hmm. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And the third victim in this story was named Joseph McDowell, 27 years old. And on April 9th, him and a friend named Jason Doty were driving on Picture Rocks Road and they ran a stop sign and the Pima County deputies attempted to pull them over. Jason Doty was driving. The victim, Joseph, was in the passenger seat. And Jason, the driver, took off and a high-speed chase ensued, ending when the driver lost control. Jason Doty lost control of the vehicle, flipped and crashed on Picture Rocks Road. Joseph was immediately thrown from the car through the windshield and died on impact to the ground immediately. Yeah. And Jason, the driver, fled. On foot. On foot. Left the car fled into the night, into the desert. The police immediately shut down the road. FBI agents, canine units, state police helicopters conducted a four-hour search, but never found Jason Doty, the driver. Wow. They also felt the police had some reason to believe that these two individuals could potentially be linked to recent murders that had happened two weeks prior of Robin and Grady. I'm guessing you're going to tell me why they thought they might be linked. Mm -hmm. So three murders and the third one potentially links to the other two because police have reason to believe that they may have been involved. The driver who was, who got away, Jason and the passenger who was killed, Joseph, in Robin Hayes and Grady Towers murders at Tohono Tool and Eiji's. would like to know, and I'm guessing you might tell me, mm-hmm. well, and you just did, perhaps, because I was going to say, what did Jason Doty do that he didn't just let himself get pulled over? Jason probably fled for multiple reasons, because Jason is very familiar with being in trouble with the law. Criminal. Yes, he is a career criminal for Mm. for most of his life. Little bit of backstory, he went to uh, Marana Elementary School, Marana High School. From a very young age, he was involved in criminal activity, problems with the law. Um, When he was just a a teenager, he was placed three times in a psychiatric treatment facility, and he escaped each of the three times from that psychiatric facility. I don't know which one. He was wow, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was on probation as a teenager for possessing LSD. He has a juvenile record that spans two states, starting with a trespassing arrest at 15 in Pima County. Um, at 16, he was arrested in Palm Springs for having LSD. His Arizona kind of criminal history reflects that he took any opportunity he ha- he could to steal anything or ingest any drugs, including, when he was younger, ingesting embalming fluid for a fast high. He had a fascination with death, and that is kind of what landed him in that psychiatric hospital that he escaped from. Well, now it's on the lookup list, but I'll say it aloud. Does embalming fluid supposedly give yes. you... Oh, you've heard that? Or you just know it from this? No, I know it from Six Feet Under. It gives you a fast high. Well, remember... Um, yeah, I don't remember that. Claire's boyfriend. Ah, uh, 
steals embalming fluid because he wants to like soak the joints in it and then smoke it because yep. it gives him a high. And then his he friend dies though, but not he from dies that. not from that. But his friend has like seizures from That's smoking. That's the- right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So through various court records, Dodie has admitted to committing numerous burglaries in Pima County over a couple weeks when he was 18. He was also accused of killing a cow with its calf during this burglarizing spree, but the charges were dismissed. There's no, I couldn't find any more information on that. It's just in a newspaper article. I hate it. Yeah, I don't love it. I don't, I don't like, like it, it either. No. I don't not. I dislike obviously it. Obviously, don't love it. I don't no. like it. I dislike it. I hate it. Um, this burglary spree apparently ended March 19th, 1990, when he was arrested for burglarizing cars. He had also stolen a shotgun and hidden it under his clothes and later said that he actually thought about killing the deputy when he arrested him. Um, he was... He was then given three years probation. So he's around 18 at this time. Three years probation for all of these multiple, multiple burglaries, but was then sent to prison the next year for violations on his probation and new crimes that included several burglaries in Benson, Arizona. He has apparently spent most of his adult life in prison on various theft and burglary charges on and off again. Um, at least between the ages of 18 and 27 when when our story takes place. During one of his court appearances from all of these many burglaries and, and prison stints, uh, he said he was born addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, in 1972 is when he was born in Red Rock, which I believe is Colorado. His parents apparently were only 17 when they had him. He was born addicted to drugs and alcohol. His parents divorced when he was only six months old and, and had a bitter custody dispute. He lived with his father in Marana until he was four, at which point his mother apparently kidnapped him and took him to California to live with her, where, where he was he claimed to have been exposed to lots of drugs, drinking, and biker gangs. He had little supervision and was smoking pot at age eight and using heavier drugs and alcohol by age 11. Um, Around that same time, his mother sent him back to live with his father because she couldn't handle him. Um, And he lived with his father in Houston from 1982 um, and then in Marana until he was 15 he moved around a bit. He mom moved around dad, a bit. Yeah, then dad, he went back to his mom. Moved around. Yeah, moved back to his mom, moved back to his dad, got a bunch of tattoos during this time, including on his upper left arm one that said, Live fast and die hard. Um, a swastika Ooh. tattooed on his arm when he was in Palm Springs because apparently he became a member of a group of skinheads called the Nazi Youth Organization, um, a chapter of of skinheads in uh, Palm Springs. I'm not sure if that's the appropriate way to... I don't think you have to worry about offending the skinheads. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. In 1987, he apparently tried to kill himself by ingesting 50 hits of acid, but a friend intervened and was able to stop that um, suicide attempt. Uh, after escaping, you know, after being placed in these psychiatric wards and escaping, uh, he was labeled as having conduct disorder and he was called solitary and aggressive. Um, a caseworker eventually was assigned to his case and, and deemed him out of control, uncooperative, and recommended that he be incarcerated to protect the community. At 17, he had five referrals for delinquent and criminal behavior. Whoa. So needless to say, all of this, I know that was a little bit all over the place, but he's, his life was a little bit all over the place. His behavior his was behavior a bit. His behavior was all over the place. Um, like I said, he did go to Marana High School, dropped out in ninth grade. And then in 1991, he was potentially facing going to prison because he violated probation. But that's then when he committed those crimes in Benson and was mm-hmm. caught and sent to prison. So he broke in Benson. He broke into a house, took jewelry. Um, and climbed outside of the house and left when he heard someone coming, but he left his car keys inside the house. Uh. So he couldn't get away, so he stole a different car and made it four miles before he was actually arrested. Also, you're fucked if you leave yes. your car there. He was caught and he went to prison for eight years and was released in 1999. 
And the one part that I haven't mentioned is that he was a self-proclaimed Satanist. In an interview, he said, basically, my beliefs are satanic. I draw from a wide variety of our, I guess you could say, cultural history and tradition. I also subscribe heavily to Anton LaVey's philosophy, a lot of principles that he put forth. I also have a racial perspective on that because of the history. Satanism has been pretty much a European-originated belief system. He was a Satanist, and he was a white supremacist. And so he wanted or, in his mind, did create a kind of new religion that was based on on being a white supremacist and satanic. So that gives us a general picture of this Jason Paul Doty. So at this point, the number one question on my mind is how and why is Jason Doty connected to all of these murders? And I promise we're getting there. So on April 1st, 2000, Jason and Joseph, because remember at this point, Joseph McDowell is still alive. He hasn't been killed in that car crash, which happened on April 9th. So Jason and Joseph break into a home in Benson, Arizona with the intention to rob it, which considering how poorly that went last time for Jason and Benson seemed like a bad idea to me. But nonetheless, they broke into the home of a man that they had likely been in contact with in the past for buying and selling weapons. This is also how they knew that there would be weapons in the house that they could steal, which is exactly what they did. They stole a variety of weapons, including a grenade launcher. Unfortunately, they also left a weapon behind during that robbery, something that Jason seems to have a bad habit of doing when he breaks into houses. Back in 91, remember he left his car keys, and this time he left a 22 caliber Ruger pistol etched with Aryan pictographs on the barrel. Initially, police had no idea whose gun this was or that it was Jason and Joseph that had been the ones to break into this home and rob it because the intruders had knocked the homeowner unconscious with a single blow to the back of his head. However, the intruders didn't know that the man had a young son, a little boy, living in the home with him, who, when he heard the intruders, he got scared, went and hid under some blankets. But in a police interview done, conducted later on, the boy claimed that he saw Joseph McDowell in his home carrying a MAC-10 assault weapon with a silencer on it. But he, the little boy couldn't 100% identify Jason Doty. Either way, charges were never brought against Joseph because eight days after this robbery, Joseph McDowell was killed when Jason flipped his car when fleeing from police. And knowing what we know now, in my mind, I'm thinking Jason definitely wasn't just fleeing because he ran a stop sign. He was fleeing because he robbed this house and potentially murdered Grady and Robin, and he had to have some inkling that police were on to him. Okay, so now let's flash forward a few weeks to Saturday, April 22nd, 2000, when an article came out in the Arizona Daily Star that was titled, Satanist Jason Paul Doty is Sought in Grady Mitchell Towers Murder. Now, Grady was murdered on March 20th, about one month prior to this article being published. Robin was murdered six days after Grady on March 26th, and Jason's friend Joseph was killed in that car crash on April 9th, so about two weeks before this article. So in the article, Pima County Sheriff Sergeant Michael O'Connor says, quote, we have strong evidence that links him to now two murders, and we believe him to be very, very dangerous. We'd like to see him arrested and in physical custody as soon as possible. I believe he's an extremely dangerous and reckless individual. The article also stated that Jason was wanted for and was going to be charged with two murders, which initially I assumed were Grady and Robin. But in actuality, he was going to be charged with first-degree murder for Grady and Joseph, and he was only a suspect in Robin's murder. And, I mean, this was weird. This is weird to me because... Joseph was killed in a car accident. So how can they charge Jason with first degree murder? Thank you. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, I get even if they knew or could look up or saw his 
criminal background history, still a car accident, even if you are evading, maybe that changes it. Evading police, actively evading police, and then someone dies in that police evasion. Yeah. That's a good question to look up. You know, maybe they're suspecting that he crashed it on purpose. Can't know that if he, like, even if he crashed on purpose, it could have killed him. Like, there's no way to know that you're going to kill your passenger. Right. Okay, so actively evading police, does Mm -hmm. that switch up whether they label it, at least up top, as manslaughter or... Versus first degree murder. Yeah. Also in this article, Sergeant O'Connor said, quote, at this point, Grady and Joseph are the only cases that we can link Jason to. What O'Connor wouldn't say in this article is how they linked him to Grady. Now, obviously, they linked him to Joseph because he was driving. But how are they linking him to Grady? That information came out because a victim witness advocate told Grady's parents that detectives had found the gun that had killed their son, a 22 caliber Ruger with Aryan pictographs etched onto the barrel. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Ballistics tests later indicated that this weapon is the weapon that fired the bullets that killed Grady at Tohono Chul. Forensics tests also showed that this same gun ejected a single unfired bullet that was found near Robin Hay's body at EG's. And that was a little confusing to me. It ejected a, an unfired bullet? So like he just emptied the clip or something? Could, yes. Barrel or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, guns malfunction. So maybe he only had one bullet and he went to shoot it. where my mind immediately went. He only maybe had one bullet, whether he knew it or not, and it misfired. It didn't do. It didn't come out. So it fell out out. or he took it out, like you said, and then he had to use second, quote unquote, best option. Right. Yeah. A knife. Right. Huh. Interesting. So this gun is now linked to the Tohono Tool murder, the EG's murder, even though no gun was used in the EG's murder. There was a shell casing there. That's no, a full, uh, a on, full bullet. Right. Yep. Sorry. Unejected bullet. Yep. Yeah. And, and then investigators found the owner's manual for this gun in the glove compartment of the Nissan Sentra that Dodie was driving when he crashed and killed Joseph McDowell. Just adding kind of more to this, the neighbor of the man who was robbed was questioned and interviewed, you know, at some point when all this is going on. So the the people that Jason Doty robbed in Benson. Thank you. One of the neighbors was questioned at a certain point and said, I know that gun. Somebody tried to sell me that gun not too long ago because I recognized the things on it. He couldn't, without a doubt, identify Jason or Joseph, but he thought they, the names sounded familiar. They looked familiar. You know, so all these pieces, nothing that is super conclusive, conclusive, except for that this gun was, I think, not 100%, but very likely the gun that was used to shoot Grady at Tohono Chul. Well, the gun is a calm, this gun, whether it's the actual gun or the same type of gun with the same right. type of bullets, is the one through and through. Through and through. Exactly. Also, Benson is a, especially one in 2000, small town, small place. So if they had a gun show, yeah, you or know, somebody, the buying and selling somebody of Somebody coming into Benson yeah. and trying to sell guns. Like, totally. You're going to notice that. Yeah. yeah. Another piece that linked Jason to at least Grady's murder, which was the first on March 20th, is that there were boot prints found at the murder scene that match, allegedly match boots owned by Jason. As I'm going through the story, these are the things that I'm initially finding that, that I'm like, okay, so this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, look at his history, which is not a, people change sometimes. His history doesn't mean he did this, but the connection to the gun, the boot prints, the manual in his sentry, the fact that he fled after he killed his friend in a car crash, and the timeline that these all are very close together, you know, it, it, it's if all pointing to, make to a him. Guess, right. Which I've made guesses in this or other things in life, I guess. Yeah. And where everything's pointing to things and it doesn't turn out to be that thing or that person. Right. And also this is pointing to this person. Right. 
So as of April 9th, 2000, he's now wanted for Grady's murder for some connection to Robin's murder because she wasn't shot. They don't, you know, that gun could have gone into someone else's possession. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Gun. I mean, yes, for sure. Right. Whoever first purchases and registers a gun, they can sell it, I think, at like a gun show, whatever. At least in Arizona, we're talking about. Right. And the, it doesn't always transfer names, registration, or whatever the exactly. terms are. Yeah. So for several weeks, about two and a half weeks to be exact, Tucson is on edge because the the police both Pima County and Marana are saying there is a deranged, armed, dangerous man just going around killing people and robbing places and residences. And then finally, about two and a half weeks later, which it doesn't sound that long, but I'd be nervous if I, you know, living in Tucson, it is big, but also if I knew there was a deranged, armed man running around. Well, you'd lock your door. I'd lock my door. Which she does now. Yeah. (laughs) I found an article because I was like, well, how? Because I found out what happened to him. But it took me forever. I was like, well, how did they catch him? What happened? And I found one article from 2000. Where they've caught Jason. Where it says, the 28-year, this is a direct quote, the 28-year-old man wanted in the killing of security guard Grady Mitchell Towers turned himself in at Pima County Jail yesterday. Jason Paul Doty, a self-proclaimed Satanist with an extensive criminal history and a record of substance abuse, was held last night on a $2 million bond on two charges of first-degree murder for Grady and Joseph. Has not been charged for Robin at this point. I still want to find out more about this first, especially now first-degree murder. Yep. Okay, we'll find out. Apparently, he was accompanied by his father. He turned himself in around noon. Uh, walked right in and and handed himself himself in. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, handed himself in. That's also. I wish I knew more about that. Think about that. Ca- uh, I hear you, and I won't ask questions. But just think about that car ride with your dad or who, yourself. Thank God someone was with him. I'm not. I'm not having compassion. I'm just saying, like. That 20 minutes from wherever he was to the Pima County Sheriff Department, he's all, well, I'm about to confess and be fucked. Mm-hmm. And he, so he was $2 million bond. Obviously, he couldn't pay. He was put He was put in jail, kept in jail. During his time in jail, he was awaiting trial. This was still 2000. We're moving into 2001 now. Okay. Yep. Um, he apparently was trying to organize a white supremacist gang from his Pima County jail cell. Uh, what court, a delight. Yes. Court records obtained indicated that Jason belonged to a group called the Circle of Satan and was trying to start a new gang called the Arizona White Aryan Resistance Skins. His quote is, I w- quote, I want nothing more than to just slaughter. I want to pick up where I left off, but I need to create the proper base. As if I had it, I would not be here now. He wrote that in a letter to another inmate, apparently. He says, my racial brooder, the enemy, must suffer and die. But if anyone asks, I wouldn't hurt a butterfly. That's what he said. Well, those are two opposing statements. No kidding. So before I tell you more about the kind of satanic beliefs and Aryan white supremacist beliefs of Jason, because that does really tie into this, actually. um, I just want to say that 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 year that Jason was in prison and trying to start a new satanic Aryan nation group slash religion. He was also, they brought first degree murder charges filed against him for the murder of Robin Hay. Mm, EG murder. Yes. It took a year. They investigated for a year and they, they had no other leads. They couldn't find anything else. And so they really kind of hung their, their entire case on that bullet that was found um, and brought charges against him for that while he was in prison. That's what, I mean, I get it when you say the whole story or what you've shared, what you found out. And also it kind of seems, I guess, based on that bullet. They quickly withdrew that murder charge, unfortunately. Uh, Because there wasn't kind of enough basis? There wasn't enough basis. And I think, I kind of, this is reading between the lines. I think, yes, there was not enough concrete evidence. And also they kind of shit the bed in the whole from the very beginning and they knew that and so 
having such a slow response time right from the beginning really set it off on a bad foot. And then a, it takes them a year to bring charges against anyone, even the most obvious person, even if it's not going to kind of hold up to at least start investigating somewhere. And, and they didn't for a whole year. So And they knew probably that that would bring ill light upon them or whatever. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot of holes to poke. Yes. a lot of holes. So flash forward to the trial for Grady. For Grady and for Joseph. I have more on the trial for Grady. When it comes to the trial for Joseph, I do believe that that happened first. And he was charged with Joseph's murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life for that. And that happened slightly before the trial for Grady's murder. Mm. Now, the trial for Grady's murder is where the real bulk of shocking information about this Jason Doty comes out. The trial for, for Jason and Grady was six days long, and it came out pretty quickly in this trial that Grady was killed as part of a satanic ritual for Jason. He believed that he could attain magical powers if he killed a Caucasian during the spring equinox, which March 20th, mm-hmm. 2000 was. The murder was designed to further Jason's belief that he could ignite a race, this is a quote, ignite a race war that would lead to world domination by Jason Doty and his satanic Wormack. Wormatched. I don't know how to pronounce what that word. That? Well, how do you spell it? W-E-R-M-A-C-H-T. Wow, that's a hard word to pronounce. Yeah. So in the trial, prosecutors introduced over 4,000 letters poems, diary entries, correspondences, treaties that he wrote, recruitment letters, and other documents that that were compiled, taken from Doty's um, jail cell possession, from his apartment, from his everything that he had written over time. And they were apparently rife with violent images that detailed his belief in a religion that he created that blends Satanism and white supremacy. He had to kill a Caucasian. Why Grady? Why Tohono O'Toole person? Like, a lot well, of questions there. Right. Yeah. Oh. So, some of the writings that were submitted as evidence alluded to Jason's need to establish a war chest of money to foment the race war and a confession to the murder is what prosecutors believe. Now, a lot of these writings were, I haven't seen any of them specifically. I have little snippets that I'll read you, but that's kind of subjective. I'm writing a poem. If I write it the day after I murder someone and it seems like it's about the murder, yeah, that doesn't look great, but is that concrete evidence? Well, it's circumstantial. Poetry is a form of art. Art is up for interpretation. And freedom of speech was a big part of this. Well, like, of course. What? Yeah. And he, the, anyone can write anything they want. And also when it's a poem where it's not like I killed this person, even that, but still like it's up for interpretation, right? <clears throat> so the prosecutors interpreted this one particular poem called Equinox MM. It was dated March 21st, the day after Grady was killed and found among Jason's possessions. The prosecutors said this is a confession and read several lines from it. Uh, One saying, quote, Behold the terror in his eyes. The lamb is thrust into the jaws of the wolf, screaming in pain, taken with force. He had a bunch of other poems titled The Satanic Apostolism, Satanic as Hell, The Five-Year Holocaust Plan, Black Metal Nazism, and Satanic Wormatched, or whatever that word is that I can't pronounce. Ooh, that's, whoa. Yeah, so, okay, like, not looking good. Not looking good. Thomas Frumson was a prison inmate who served time with Jason in the past and claimed that he was Jason's second-in-command of this Satanic Wormat. Wormatched? I have to figure out how to say that word. And in the trial said that Jason viewed the members of his cult as wolves who preyed on weak lambs. So Frumson also said that Jason believed that magical powers could be obtained by violently shedding the blood of white people who did not share his Aryan beliefs. So this is what the prosecution really, in addition to the boot prints and the handgun that witnesses you know, identified as potentially belonging to Jason. They really hung kind of their entire case on that. 
the prosecutor said that that poem, Equinox M.M., and where he writes about the lamb being thrust into the jaws of the wolf, is him poetically describing how he stood over a wounded Grady after he shot him from far away and then fired five more bullets into his head from as close as two inches away. That was the the lawyer or the police's interpretation? Yes, that's, that is what... Um, Deputy County Attorney David White, okay. the prosecutor, is oh. telling jurors. He's, you know, basically saying these writings. He's, Jason is outlining these murders. He's confessing. This is, these poems are his confessions. It's a poetic confession. Yes. And Jason's lawyer, defense attorney Richard Parrish, he, he gave a really interesting opening argument that I want to share. So he opened his argument by, by saying, I'm going to tell you a story about going to visit my aunt in New York. And... As I'm walking down the street visiting my aunt, I see a wristwatch in a window, window front, and I go inside to buy it. And the man inside, when I asked about this wristwatch, says, I don't sell jewelry. I actually perform circumcisions. Parrish, the lawyer, said, well, why are there wristwatches in the window? The man replied, well, what am I supposed to put in my window to advertise that I perform circumcisions? Little pieces of dick. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps that would make more sense to me. But what Parrish yep. told this story as is that he said, the point of this is to say that things aren't always what they seem. He said, Equinox MM is simply a poem. Jason spent a ton of time in prison where people become bitter and they think bitter thoughts. It wasn't a confession. It was a fantasy. It was a violent piece of art. Um, and then he went on to say, do you assume that rap artists such as Eminem are murderers because they write Ooh, explicit lyrics about that are very violent? And, you know, this man went on to sell 80 million copies, but he you're not putting him on trial. I have a question. Mm. What do you think about this musing that he said? I think... I think because there is some physical evidence, even if it's not 100% locked down, but the gun being, having, have been in his possession, along with testimony from like his old prison cellmate needing to spill the blood of people on the equinox, which this murder did take place. He writes the poem the day after. No, I don't think that if this was the only, if the poem is all they have and that's it, no, that's not enough. And you can't use that because it is. It's freedom of speech. You're allowed to write whatever you want. He didn't write, I killed Grady Towers yesterday with this 22 caliber Ruger. If he had, then fine. But no, I don't think it's enough, unfortunately. I think it is very suspicious. I meant, I mean, I appreciate it. <laughs> I meant more. What do you think of that? The defense attorney, the defense attorney's like kind of spin. Spin. Yeah, just his story and spin. It's kind of weird. I think there's a way better way to. Yeah, like why are you bringing in circumcision? Like, not that that's like highly. um, Yeah, it's not. It's not like controversial. I think controversial, but and also you could make the same point with a lot of different things of different stories. Yeah, I didn't. I don't. I didn't love it. I just thought that's why I wanted to share because it it's like what how'd you come up with a wristwatch and circumcision this I do agree with that that Parrish says about in his defense of, of Jason he says the Jason's writings and beliefs aren't on trial he can write whatever he wants it's the way that a guy who's in prison vents and gets this poison out of his mind to put it on the paper also I want to know why is the poison in your mind I get that could just be from being in prison you could be poison. from being in prison, and I think that but also, you know, hearing about his history, he had a he was a lot of poison, a lot of poison going yeah. on in there. So Parrish also criticized the boot prints, saying that investigators couldn't say for certain that the exact pair of boots that made the footprints were the same exact boots that Jason had. They couldn't. They could say they were the same make and model, make and model but they don't know and for size. Sure. And then Parrish put something out there and said. They could have been Joseph McDowell's. They were a similar size. They shared uh, clothing and shoes. They were good friends. It could have been Joseph McDowell who did this, and but he's dead now. Didn't Joseph die kind of at the scene? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. I see what you're saying. Like, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. Ooh. Yes. Good defense. I'm not buying it, but well, maybe this is it's... the one catch is that the boots were turned over 
to police by Joseph's mother-in-law, who found them on her back porch. Joseph oh, McDowell. So, yeah, no, no, I gotcha. So, well, that just changes exactly what I said. Yeah, but you know, maybe I mean, it Jason doesn't put change there. it, but it yeah it puts a little opens question. it more. Mm-hmm. Well, and what did I, I know? You probably don't know this, but. I would wonder what Joseph's mother said when she turned them in. Oh, I just found these. These were his. If I was the person intaking them or the detective or mm-hmm. whomever, I'd say, do you remember your son ever wearing these? Were these his, were these right. his shoes? All the things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was mm. clear that Parrish, Jason's attorney, was trying to pin this on Joseph, who was dead. And that's exactly what the prosecution said, that Mm. that Parrish is conveniently trying to pin this on the dead guy who can't answer for his crimes. And it it's just an easy out mm. for Jason. Ultimately, the prosecution kind of closing arguments after six days. So this was introduced in, in, in the trial and also in his closing arguments that Jason Doty was in possession of the murder weapon at the time of Grady's murder. It was stolen shortly before the murder, and two witnesses said that they saw him with it after the murder. One witness testified that Jason or a friend of Jason's named Joseph tried to sell him the weapon. So that's those people in Benson where they were trying to sell the weapon. And that manual was in his car for the weapons, the user manual. That means to me, more likely that it's his, doesn't mean he's the one that turned it on someone. But the final thing that the prosecution introduced that that for me kind of seals this deal is that the case for that twenty two caliber Ruger was found in Jason Doty's apartment. Because right here, the past five, ten minutes, you've had me flip-flopping back and forth. Yeah, me too. Joseph, Jason. Yep. Jason, Joseph. (laughs) Yes. That's how I have felt as well. You know, and Richard Parrish, in his closing arguments, said the boots were not conclusively linked to Jason. Jason's fingerprints were not found on the gun, but also like glove. You know, to me, that's kind of. Uh. And that was that was it. So the jury deliberated for five hours. Wow, that's quick. Very quick. On January eighteenth, two thousand two, Jason was found guilty for murdering Grady Towers, and was. He was already serving 25 to life for Joseph in a previous trial, which there isn't much information on. The charges about Robin were dropped, and now he has been charged, uh, sentenced to life for murdering Grady Towers. So he's essentially serving, was serving two life sentences without par- any possibility for parole. Most police in Marana still felt that he was the primary suspect in the unsolved murder of Robin Hay, and they had planned to continue investigating this and and hopefully eventually be able to convict him of that as well. Yet? Yet that didn't exactly happen because in April of 2003, Jason Doty was diagnosed with lymphoma. He had a biopsy that confirmed that the presence of the disease was there. It was unclear initially if it was terminal. The cancer moved into his brain, and he died later that year in 2003. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Up until the day that he died, he vehemently denied any involvement in any of these murders. He said that, that he was a scapegoat because of his you know, white supremacist and Satanistic beliefs. Did he ever say like, no, it was my friend that's dead now, Joseph? No, he never said anybody that it was. He just said it wasn't him. him. Okay. Yeah. After after this, there was a, an article in the Arizona Daily Star where there were some quotes from Grady Tower's brother because mm-hmm. his mother died. Um, Whose mother? Grady's? Grady's mother died before... Jason died so she did get to see him convicted and 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 the brother said that his mom never forgave Jason Doty for her son's murder she was a religious woman she had a really hard time with what he had done and Grady's brother said if anyone deserved to die for their crimes it was him but when someone commits a crime I would hope and prefer that they have time to repent and pay for it rather than just die so he you know yes Doty died but um he didn't suffer. Well, didn't I, suffer. I don't know how much he suffered. I shouldn't yeah. say that. But like people, the loved ones of the victims or that victim wanted him to like 
live with it for a minute. Well, and unfortunately, Richard Parrish, Dodie's attorney, said, I talked to him a few weeks ago. This was right after Jason died. He said, I talked to him a few weeks ago, and he appeared to be pleasant and happy. He didn't think that his cancer was terminal. He thought that he would be recovering. You know, he was in good spirits up until he died pretty quickly. He didn't suffer that long because he was diagnosed Mm. and died within the same year. Do you think he did it? I do. Okay. And Robin. That one's a bit dicey for I mean, that one's tough for me. And and there's very little information on it. I tend to think yes, because it was such a violent crime. There was only $800 stolen from the EGs. So somebody who's going to almost decapitate someone for 800 bucks. I don't know. This goes back to it wasn't about the money at right. Tohono Chul or the exactly. The, what, yeah. Yeah. So That's I that think line of thinking, yeah, you know, he clear very clearly said, I need to spill the blood of white people who don't believe in my Aryan beliefs. This seemed like that's what that was. So his um, fingerprints weren't found on the gun. Mm-mm. I'm guessing that means to what you could find, no ones were. No, right. There was no other suspects in this, really. Yeah. No. A bit of a windy kind of piece. I feel like I even have a lot of questions for the lookup list just because this, it, it was really going through old newspaper clippings like not much of it is online yeah it's interesting because it's not the newest but it's not the no it's not the oldest no not at all we had like one from the 70s yeah or two ago a little bit of a different type of case but um one that i just i found pretty fascinating well and it's a this sounds mean Mm. I was gonna say it's like kind of variety like it's 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 different paths of the same one you know well, yeah, we, remember, we, guys, I had like a lot of family <laughs> dinner last night. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, for a while, remember, we had a lot of like young women who were strangled and yeah. raped. And, and so this is this. I believe that he did commit these as part of satanic rituals, which is something that we have not had. And with that, I will just say happy Sunday. And by the time you listen to this, happy Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Please be gentle on us with this episode because we are both struggling. (laughs) We're both not in our best forms. We are not in our best forms, but we didn't want to miss a week um, just because we had an overly abundant family dinner. That seems not appropriate. So here we go. Here's the episode. Have a great week. We will be back with the lookup list later this week. And thank you for listening. And good night and good luck. Bye, guys. Adios. Bye-bye. Death by Southwest is hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Executive produced by Margot Carmichael. Produced by Jenna Schneider. Audio editing and sound design by Margot Carmichael. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck. <laughs>